You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We deeply apologize for having inconvenienced and caused so many people pain with such a serious scandal. A Japanese university apologizes for fiddling its entrance exams, but how does any institution think it can still get away with this kind of thing? My guests Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Donald Trump's trade war with China, which is not growing more explicable as it escalates, the latest round of American primaries in which some of the workers unemployed by Trump's trade war are voting, and the decline of Paris's bike-sharing scheme, and what the anger about it tells us about how important such systems have become. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, broadcaster and author of The Great Economists, and Jonathan Fenby, chairman of China Research and director of European Political Research at T.S. Lombard. Welcome both. And we will start with a dispatch from the front line of US President Donald Trump's curious trade war with China. American tariffs have been announced on another $16 billion worth of Chinese imports, adding to the tariffs already imposed on $34 billion of Chinese imports. The new measures will go into place later this month, as previously, the goods targeted are mostly raw materials rather than finished consumer products, but these may be affected by further tariffs, which have also been threatened yet to be imposed. Um, Linda, you're an economist and everything. Um, does any of this make any sense? It's a very unusual way to try to open up a market, isn't it? If you, Is uh, your way of saying no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of the uh, the tariff or the trade equivalent of gunboat diplomacy. If you don't uh, buy more American goods, we're going to put a tax on what you sell. And that's essentially what this is. So the better way to re- reduce a trade deficit is to export more. It's not to make imports more expensive, which is what a tariff does. So I think this continually um, long-running trade dispute really has at the heart of it the fact that China's markets are not as open as America's. And that really is what needs to be addressed. But of course, these talks have been ongoing behind the scenes. They have been talking about trying to open up China's markets more. um, And there just hasn't been a lot of success, which is why you're seeing this escalation of the amount of goods which are subject to a higher tariff. And remember, Andrew, by September, beginning of September, it could be $200 billion of Chinese imports. That's about half of what China sells to the U.S. every year. And here's the really worrying part. Um, China's been doing a tit-for-tat retaliation. So you put tariffs Mm. on a few billion of our goods. Mm. We're going to put tariffs on a few billion of your goods. But China only imports $160 billion from the U.S. So they can't retaliate in kind. And so one of the most fascinating things, and this is very worrying, is that they derailed a very big M&A deal between a U.S. Mm. tech company, Qualcomm, um, 
buying a Dutch chip maker. So you think this has nothing to do with China, but China as a major market can rule, or in their case, um, refrain from doing anything, which meant that there was no regulatory approval from China for this deal to go through, and it derailed a two-year M&A um, deal the U.S. tech company was trying to mm. do, and so that's another way of retaliating, and that's actually much more damaging than taxes. Uh, Jonathan, if it if it's difficult to discern the economic logic of this, is there? And I apologize in advance, as I always do to guests when I'm trying to ask them to consider things from Donald Trump's perspective. Is there any apparent political logic to any of this? Yes. I mean, Trump is playing to his base. Take everything that Linda said. Take the fact that in May there was an outline agreement between the main Chinese negotiator, Liu He, and the Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin, uh, who said, you know, there is no trade war. That uh, agreement was made, which would have opened up uh, Chinese markets in a perhaps not huge manner, but that would have been an opening up of of the Chinese markets. And the Chinese at that point seemed ready to liberalize uh, in a number of ways. But Trump said no. And the trade hawks around him in the White House said no. Uh, They want to go for a big state-to-state, nation-to-nation fight, if you like. And for Trump, I think that uh, signifies that he can say, you know, I'm standing up for the people who voted for me. Of course, that is not necessarily the case because of the ramifications of this war, which I think will go on and on. But it is very much a political uh, conflict that's taking part place and which is political on the other side because China in its present form, the uh, rulers of China cannot give way uh, to Trump without uh, harming, dismantling part of the state system which they have built up and on which uh, their uh, rule uh, depends to a large extent. Linda, do you think the Chinese government see trade between the US and China as quite the zero-sum proposition that that Trump seems to. Are are they still a bit perplexed by what Trump thinks he's doing here? I think they view trade as beneficial for both sides, but I think they also acknowledge... That's the difference right there, isn't there? Because the the ideal of trade is that both sides win, win, whereas Trump seems to think every transaction has a winner and a loser. That's right. But remember, when the Chinese say it's a win-win situation, it normally means the Chinese win twice. (laughs) Yes, they win more. (laughs) So, um, So... I think the uh, I think the danger is the Chinese should have opened up their markets um, sooner. It's obviously uh, better for China to have more competition, especially in some of the sectors dominated by state-owned enterprises. But that gives you the very reason why these markets are not opened up. So it'd be better for China's growth. But that isn't, as we all know, policy is not made just on the basis of what is good from the perspective of economics. There's also politics. There's power. Um, and so I think in this situation. China have put themselves forward as this new champion of globalization because the U.S. has pulled back. But their rhetoric doesn't really match the reality of trading and investing in China. And so I think they're aware of this inconsistency in their own uh, in their own side. And in many ways, I think Trump is calling out this inconsistency, but rather in a very uh, messy way. Is that one mm. way of putting it? <laughs> uh, again, uh, your, your, your mastery of the tactful euphemism 
is, is, is something to behold. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned earlier that this was Trump pandering to his base, and most things Trump does are exactly that. But is that, is that just, again, just thinking politically, and we'll end up addressing this in the, the next subject as well, a, a viable thing for him in the long term? Um, the US Chamber of Commerce has estimated that if yep. much more of this carries on, 2.6 million American jobs will be lost, and they are likely either not to be lost by Trump voters. Absolutely. That, that it will hit back on them. And also, uh, I mean, the, the tariff so far, as you were saying, has mainly hit non-consumer goods. If we get them rolled out to the extent that Trump is talking about, this will hit consumer goods. This will hit the people buying cheap Chinese goods at Walmart and so on. And will push up inflation in the United States, which could mean that the Federal Reserve will then put up interest rates. You've got a whole series of repercussions uh, coming out of this, which uh, could indeed be pretty bad for Trump's base. He will, I would think, if we know anything about him, go on trying to sell um, his policies to that base. And China finds itself, frankly, caught up in a process here, which it doesn't really know how to deal with. There was the the Qualcomm um, veto, which uh, or non-approval, which Linda referred to earlier. And a writer in People's Daily I saw yesterday or today is saying, well, American companies make an awful lot of money out of China. They should start contributing something to China. I do you start slapping uh, special levies, duties on American companies, big American companies operating in the mainland? OK, well, let's move on and take a look at the United States, where this year, for obvious enough reasons, the upcoming midterm elections, that'll be in November, and the primaries preceding them have become the focus of a hitherto unusual global wishful thinking. Four states held primaries yesterday, and some of the results seem a further example of President Trump's reverse Midas touch, i.e. is his, his extraordinary facility for inspiring and invigorating that which he likes least and fears most. It is now clear that more women will contest governorships and House seats this year than ever before, that the first Muslim woman will be returned to Congress, and judging by what looks a narrow squeak in the special election in Ohio's hitherto rock-solid Republican 12th district, that Trump's endorsement may be a mixed blessing. That was me using a tactful euphemism there. Um, Linda, is this the Trump effect in full flight? Would all these women be running for office were anybody else president of the United States? Mm, it's a good question. I think the loss of Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump must have played a role. I mean, essentially, after her loss, um, Hillary Clinton started um, really promoting women from uh, to run for office instead of protesting, just protesting. She said, well, you know, you need to get into the fray. Why don't you run for political office? Make your change there instead of um, waiting or maybe standing on the sidelines. So I'm sure it has something to do with it. And we've already seen some pretty extraordinary uh, candidates come forward, some very young candidates as well. And that could really dramatically change the way the U.S. landscape work. But I'm using that could as a potentially could because, as you know, most congressional seats are extremely safe. The re-election yeah. rate is like 98%. Mm. And that's 100 of the 100% of the seats in the 435 uh, seats in the House. And of course, a third of the Senate is up and something like three quarter or two thirds of the uh, governorships are up, but they're pretty safe seats. So I think we mustn't sort of get carried away <laughs> that because they're standing that we necessarily will get a massive uh, sea change. We may well get some pri- high profile uh, changes 
changes, and those are the ones that always capture uh, the news, uh, um, atten- the attention mm. of uh, journalists. But I think you know the reality is a number of Republicans are retiring their seats. Mm. Those are the seats where we could see some change. Mm. I mean, Jonathan, do you think Trump's the fact of Trump's election, uh, unlikely though it seemed up until more or less the moment it happened, has been uh, whatever the results in November, something of a wake-up call to uh, not even just liberal America, but basically sane America, which I think had got used to, as as I think as citizens of stable democracies do, you get used to the idea that these institutions are permanent, that they're entirely uh, self-maintaining, that I don't really need to get involved, everything's basically fine. Yes, well, I think it has been a wake-up, inevitably a wake-up call, not just the election of Trump, but also his behaviour since uh, he won the White House and so on, and that and that continues in every way. The question with the these uh, elections now and the Ohio special election is the extent to which the mobilisation of the Democrats against Trump can be turned into... Uh, a, a movement for two years on for the presidential uh, election then with a candidate who can both represent the anti-Trump feeling but also represent something coherent which is, you know, different from him. Uh, Linda, for all that you make the point that it is very, very hard uh, to challenge incumbents in US Congress, many of the seats are uh, so hilariously gerrymandered that they are they are pretty much jobs for life. But nevertheless, if the Democrats can flip the House uh, and possibly even the Senate, which would be even funnier, um, what effect do you think that might have on Donald Trump? Is it is it possible that it might actually calm him down because he realises that he has to calm down because he can't have his own way anymore? Or is it possibly likely to make him even weirder? <laughs> I have no idea what the, what effect we'll have. But the, the, it's not uncommon for the president to lose Congress yeah, in a midterm yeah. election. Not. Yeah. And normally what it does is that it ties the hands of the president, the executive branch. So what you see, so say say in the scenario they win both houses, which I don't think is likely, but if they just win one house, um, it just means that for President Trump to do anything, he has to seek out more members of his own party to make compromises, something that he hasn't really been uh, that great at doing. But say, in the very unlikely scenario, the Democrats take over, I mean, who knows, could happen, um, then he might end up like Obama in the last two years of his presidency, which is to rely on executive orders. In other words, it's so difficult to get legislation through that there's a limited range of things the president will end up focusing on because that's all the president can really do. But within those powers, I'm afraid, are trade, immigration, um, and a lot of foreign policy. So I just power of life and death over all humankind and so (laughs) (laughs) he just loses the domestic agenda i guess is what i'm trying to say because what we also have in this is we've been talking about you know trump and the democrats but we have the dynamic of trump and the republican party uh, and trump has made the running so far you know particularly uh, at the moment and so on but if the midterms turned bad for the Republicans, the question then would be, would the party pull itself together and say, this man is leading us off the cliff? Uh, just to follow that up, though, Jonathan, I guess to recap a, a lot of what we've been talking about, is it uh, if we focus especially on the Ohio 12th District, which most yeah. of the attention has been on Republican incumbent uh, retiring, so wh- whoever wins this is not going to be potentially not going to be uh, a member of Congress very long. But it has been, uh, well, the result is not, 
by any means decided yet, no. but but it looks as if the Republican candidate has just about fallen over the line. Is it a mistake, though, to infer general trends from things like this? Is it in the same way that in, in Britain, by-elections sure. are traditionally regarded as an excuse to give the government of the day a bit of a kicking? Yes, it's a mistake, but it's all we've got to go on, basically, <laughs> which is why by-elections and these kind of parts, you know, small, small elections have that effect. But as I understand it, if the Republicans won by the very, very slim uh, margin in the 12th district, that is uh, predicted, if you then extrapolate that even to only half the seats up uh, in the midterms, you get a pretty dramatic change because this should have been uh, a slam dunk, I think is the word. As the Americans would call it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, win for the Republicans. So this, you know, this is roughly like uh, in Britain, the Conservatives just squeaking home in a very, very safe home county seat. Okay, well, we'll take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, a university in Japan becomes the latest institution to have forgotten to ask the always crucial question, what could possibly go wrong? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip. Our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby. Now, the popular image of Japan is one of a rigidly orderly and lawful society, which is perhaps why such scandals as do occur there are seen as more surprising and why they prompt such picturesque penitence. Senior officials from Tokyo Medical University have undertaken a measure of abject bowing following the revelation by the Yomiuri Shimbun newspaper that, for more than a decade, the university has been cooking its entrance exam results to reduce its intake of female students and to increase increase rather its intake of students who'd made donations to the university. Um, Linda, I'm, I'm mesmerised by this story as I am by all stories such as this. It's just it's the thought of the initial meeting at which someone floats this idea and, and no one else at the table just goes, guys, no, this is, this is, this is terrible. We will get caught and leaving aside the whole this is obviously no sort of way to behave thing um <laughs> yeah this is going to end us end up with us sort of uh nodding and scraping towards a, a large gaggle of gleeful journalists yeah so i guess um yes i think uh, somebody at that meeting probably should have said um so do you think that is the best way to uh, to ensure that we have uh, we have uh, the most merit-based system as you certainly want for doctors what was fascinating actually about this is that before they started with this uh, plan um 40 percent of the um, of their students were women, and Indeed then so. it dropped yeah. dramatically because yes, they fiddled well, the yes, the yeah. test scores. Um, and I think I mean a couple of things. One is um, obviously this is absolutely terrible. I can't remember. I can't. 
I can't think of what anybody thinks this is a great reason. I think the, the reasons that the Japanese newspaper mentioned are that women will have career interruptions, yep. so therefore they uh, won't give a good return. I don't think there's any, you can't give any yes. uh, support to that. Um, fa- fa- famously, women who have given birth are rendered completely <coughs> incapable of functioning yeah. as doctors thereafter. Yeah. You know, but the other thing is, you have to realize over the last few years, under Shinzo Abe, so this pretty much coincides with Shinzo Abe's term as prime minister. He's been focused on promoting women and gender equality. It's his way of trying to move women up into the workforce um, and promote them so that womenomics, so that Japan can enjoy the growth benefits that Western economies enjoyed when women were added to the workforce after World War II that boosted GDP by something like 14%. So it goes completely against really what everyone else in the country seems to be talking about, which is how can we get more women into um, professions, into work, um, because this is going to be one of the keys to ending three decades of stagnation. Um, Jonathan, as uh, institutions of all sorts obviously have absurd and terrible ideas in all countries mm-hmm. all the time, but this particular sort of scandal, is this as unusual as we think it is by Japanese standards? Probably not, no. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I ask for the evidence and I won't won't be able to produce a great deal of it. But I think the kind of institution which this appears, this university appears to conform to is quite Japanese and is the kind of closed organization where uh, one assumes the idea came down from a, a hierarchy, came down on high. And as you say, nobody would say, hey, this is a, a bad idea in itself. And secondly, we're going to be found out. There was a feeling that we can do this. Uh, we're not going to argue with whoever it was who was senior who proposed this and somehow we are going to be... But this is another common stereotype of Japan, of course, that it is very strictly hierarchical. So I may be being too too stereotypical here. But but, but it would be an explanation that not much chat goes backwards up the chain of command from anybody saying, we're not going to do this, this is terrible. And there's the feeling that the media, you know, that this will not be subject to public gaze. The media will play along with this and uh, we can get away with it, basically. Um, Linda, you, you quite correctly pointed out that that uh, Japan, certainly in terms of developed nations, is uh, dragging the chain somewhat on uh, gender equality in the workplace and that Shinzo Abe has been trying to rectify that. I mean, And, and there are, as you also pointed out, there's the fact that it's, it's basically the right and decent thing to do and two, it is economic insanity not to. Um, that all being said, or that all being the case, are we at least encouraged by the public response to this scandal breaking, which does appear to have been one of actually quite genuine outrage? Yeah, very much yeah. so. I mean, I think this is actually one of the uh, one of the indicators that after many, many years where women just were not equal in Japan, some of the culture, the norms are beginning to shift because it is very unusual. In the 21st century, the world's third biggest economy, remember they were the second biggest economy, Mm -hmm. for many, many years to have so few women in the workforce um, and for so few women to be bosses. Something like 4% of Japanese executives are women. Um, That's extraordinary. They seem very much behind the times. And it's not as if they didn't know that gender equality is something to to push for. It's, you know, as I understand it, a lot of it is culture, it's norms, it takes time. Mm. And so I'm actually quite heartened by the fact that um, something like this shows that the conversations everybody's been having in Japan over the past few years, um, that maybe 
it um, bearing some fruit. Because there's been very little indication, at least, that I've been able to discover of people making a case for what this university mm. have been doing. It's no. also anti-meritocratic, which yeah. is one of the Japanese-Asian traits. You should be based on merit. I think yeah. it offends yeah, people in lots yeah. of lots of ways. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, finally tonight uh, to Paris, where there is bad news for visitors looking to liven up a visit to the city by the crapshoot with the Reaper that is taking the Arc de Triomphe roundabout on two wheels. Paris's bike share system, Velib, has run into something of a ditch. A change of company running the scheme has seen vastly fewer velocipedes available and hundreds of docking stations degenerating into inoperability. In response to considerable public harumphing, Paris's mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has issued an ultimatum that it all be fixed by September. Um, Jonathan, I want to start by asking you about that actually quite widespread public fury uh, at this. Does this tell us that in the cities which have bike share schemes, they have started to be seen as absolutely fundamental infrastructure that just should work? Yes, absolutely. They have become part of urban life, I think, and they should work. The company running them should make sure they work, and the city authorities should make sure that that company makes sure they work, and so on. And people want them to be not only reliable, available when reliable in terms of working, but available when they need them. That's that's the other thing. It's, I think it's become part of, I don't use them myself. Uh, I'm too aged and uh, worried about crash, you know, a lorry crashing into me. But um, I think they've become part of the warp and woof of, of urban life. I mean, Lindy, do you think that's the case? And if so, is that surprising? Because I, th- I think, like most people, when they were first introduced here in London, uh, I-, I regarded them as something that was more likely to be seen as, as-, as something of a- an amusing novelty for tourists. Uh, I think it's become more a part of how people commute. Mm. I mean, frankly, you know, if you look around, it's difficult. It's difficult to get around, and bikes are one of the solutions. I think the the particular problem for Paris is that they really put themselves forward as this very eco-green city. Don't drive. Areas are pedestrianized. If you need to get around, we have this wonderful bike-sharing scheme, and they were emulated by other cities. And so I think this is probably horribly embarrassing because part of the problem is not not just the company not working well, but it's also vandalism. Um, people are sure. actually vandalizing these bikes. And so I think that you probably don't see so much in other cities. It's not to suggest other cities don't have problems. We started this program talking a bit about China. In China, they have these bike sharing schemes where mm. you actually pay for it, so you're not actually sharing it. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. they have nowhere to deposit the bike. So basically, people get the bike, and then they just park it wherever. And then you have literally bikes piled up all over the pavements. So different cities have different problems. But I think given the terrible congestion problem that you have in major cities. Um, I'm not surprised that bikes are just becoming um, more uh, useful. Yeah, And you also have in Paris Hidalgo, the mayor, who is very much, you know, running uh, on a green platform. So wants the support of the Greens within the Socialist Party, the declining Socialist Party to which she belongs. She needs political support and she needs political support from the kind of Parisians, not tourists, obviously, because they don't vote, but Parisians who use this scheme. And uh, when they find themselves, as one was quoted as saying uh, today in one report, you know, by the time you've been to every Velo station looking for a, uh, a bike, you end up having gone on, on foot to where you're aiming at. <laughs> um, Linda, Jonathan's already answered this question uh, about whether or not you'd ever actually used one. And I, I'll answer it by saying that my answer is also no, because I think my own sort of chronic 
uncoordination and habitual absent-mindedness <laughs> would probably result in. It's going to end badly for somebody, whether That's it's the... probably me, but also quite possibly the person I, I run over. Uh, are, are you a regular user of these things? Uh, no, but uh, my main concern with it is very similar to uh, to what you just mentioned. I think there's no, you have to carry a helmet, I think, because yes. obviously one of the big issues around cycling, these kinds of schemes is you don't have the right uh, helmet, you don't necessarily have any uh, reflective clothing and all the kinds of things that make it safe. But obviously with more bike lanes being put in. I don't think we are the norm. I think we're the exception. I think there's enough people who say, you know, a congestion is terrible. Obviously, you don't want to drive. It's also bad for the environment. Public transport is so congested. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to push for having more eco-solution and bikes. So what I actually do is I walk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that this is the ultimate answer. No, not two wheels, but two two legs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, on which I uh, you absolutely agree as which well. Which you have, Andrew, too. And I'm sure you uh, walk uh, in uh, a very uh, controlled manner. Um, brisk. Uh, uh, we, we, I'll we, see we, you outside afterwards. Br- br- brisk <laughs> with occasional grumping yeah. at the people immediately in front of me who yeah. are perhaps not proceeding in quite as brisk a manner. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a manner. I, I, I would be heartily in favour of, of, of footpaths being divided into lanes. So you, you have so, so on one hand on one side you have you know amblers bumblers tourists yeah. people who don't really know what they're doing or where they're going and on the other lane you have people who actually have some clue of their their destination yes, right. and 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 some sort of urgency about their arrival at it Right. But just, just basically, and because we still have a whole ten seconds to fill, I, 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 will, I will. I mean, Linda, do do cities in general are they good economically speaking from an economist's point of view? Uh, bike sharing schemes. Yeah, I think as part of the sharing economy, I think the ones that have done it so that it's free, I think there's a benefit. More yeah. exercise, it's greener. But you know, as we've been saying, walking. Try walking if you have the time. Yeah. But not in Andrew's way. Walk Absolute, in a different lane. Absolutely not. Wise words. Which bring us to the end of today's show, Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby. Thank you both for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Anna Shevetska. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you for listening.